Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin with, I'd like to thank Langvid, who made a donation for my pay-what-you-can audiobook edition of my novel, The Genesis Generation. And uh, Langvid, your donation is greatly appreciated and will go to uh, help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. Now, today we're going to hear the final part of an interview that Timothy Leary did on KPFT Radio in Houston, Texas in November of 1976, just a few months after he was released from prison. And as some of the comments I've received about the previous podcast of the first two parts of this interview stated, uh, Dr. Leary seems a little bit more subdued than we've heard him before. But uh, when he was asked about this, uh, I think that his comeback was perfect. Now, uh, I've not edited or cut out anything from this uh, really long three-part interview, and while you're going to hear uh, a bit more about his ideas concerning space migration, we're also going to hear what I think is a very interesting take on the presidency of John Kennedy. So, uh, without any further ado, let's rejoin Dr. Timothy Leary and uh, his questioners on a winter day in Houston, Texas, back in 1976, just a uh, few weeks after Jimmy Carter won the presidency of the U.S. The uh, DNA code of every listener of this broadcast is a potential post-terrestrial who will be able to use telepathy, who will be able to use the nervous system as a computer, you know, there are a few idiot savants or a few people that kind of uh, mutants uh, that do have these incredible psychic phenomena now. We can't explain it. Uh, it makes us uneasy. We, we push it aside. There's no question that these uh, psychic phenomena do exist in rare people. But they're like premature butterflies, and caterpillars don't like this because it's not time uh, for us to be communicating in these new ways. So the fixed circuit of the nervous system is, we call it neuroelectric, and it's going to involve acceleration. Uh, it's going to involve uh, an Einsteinian use of the, of the nervous system and uh, Einsteinian ways of communicating with great rapidity, which uh, we know the brain is capable of, which we can't use down here. It's been a cliche, you know, for a dozen years now. People say, well, we use only 10% of our brain or we use only 1% of our brain or there are more connections in the brain than are atoms in the universe. How come we're not smarter? How come I can't balance my checkbook? Uh, you know, uh, well, it's not time to use them. Uh, we're just discovering that the right hemisphere of the brain, for example, has functions and intelligences and receptive possibilities that the left brain doesn't have. Well, these neurologically and anatomically, these functions are there and they will pop out. Those who have had uh, really intense revelatory or mystic or psychic experiences know what I'm talking about. The, the interesting thing that... Uh, way of illustrating what we mean by the sixth circuit, neuroelectric consciousness and intelligence. The best example of that is Einstein. Einstein was a very interesting young man. Einstein was literally retarded when it came to uh, talking and to writing. He didn't, he didn't talk with, what, six or seven. He thought, he thought he was, uh, and that's happened, by the way, with many of our, Darwin was another person. There are many of our greatest geniuses that were slow uh, learners, really started, uh, you know, considered mentally retarded. 
Einstein was doing something else, which was a pure sixth circuit phenomenon. Now, Einstein was spent a lot of his, his time thinking of what it would be like to be a photon. How about that? Uh, those of you who are veterans of the, of the 60s will know what I'm talking about. Here's this uh, young Jewish boy exiled in Switzerland who was trying to experience what it would be like to be moving at the speed of light. Uh, if he was moving at the speed of light, he, his body would have no mass. He'd be pure energy. Well, I think it was the fact that he experienced uh, this, not just uh, in equations abstractly uh, using laryngeal manual symbols, but he experienced it. It led him to write the uh, great equations of uh, energy and mass, which have totally transformed our uh, understanding of ourselves and nature. So neuro neurologic, which is this new system of psychology that I'm writing about, is an Einsteinian as opposed to a Newtonian psychology. And uh, the sixth circuit has to do with uh, neuroelectricity, which is the sort of level you get at in the, in the high, fast-moving psychedelic experience. Grass, marijuana is a fifth circuit experience. But when you get into those stages where your, your brain is clicking off, you know, millions of, uh, of items uh, a second and you're uh, overwhelmed and inundated by uh, avalanches and Niagara's of, uh, of uh, fast-moving Einsteinian uh, visions. Uh, that's, that's the way we're going to be operating. Now, LSD, <coughs> I'll get into that right now, is a, a dangerous drug because it's basically a post-terrestrial experience. And for caterpillars to start taking a butterfly drug, it gives you perspectives and forecasts of what's to come, but you can understand why it was confusing and why in the 60s I was warning people uh, there are perhaps less than 10% of the population who should even consider under the best circumstances of disciplined uh, control to take this uh, drug because LSD is not a hedonic, layback, multi-orgasm drug. It really isn't. It's a neurological experience. It's a six-circuit neuroelectric experience and it's basically in preparation for post-terrestrial life. All of the drug metaphors of the 60s had to do with getting high, of spacing out, you know, floating off. Uh, I think these are accurate uh, vernacular uh, expressions of a neurological state that is to come. Would you, would you have a, uh, maybe a few minutes to uh, talk to the people who've been listening to you? We could take some phone calls. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen to them, not talk to them. Yeah, listen, listen to them. them. Sure. I think you had a question. I have one. I don't there may be a more important one on the line. We can get that. Um, regarding the migration that you speak about, uh, do you posit a coincident kind of apocalypse that... Uh, Mandates uh, migration. People see things going to hell here on Earth. Yeah. Uh, one third of mankind is starving. Yeah. And plagues uh, on the horizon yeah. and all kinds. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was just an incredible news story about an atomic blast in China that wound up in Pennsylvania. Did you see that story? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and there are many, many more examples of this. There are some respectable schools of thought that say that. Uh, uh, the apocalypse, in some form or another, is at hand. And I wonder if you see anything like this, and if this gives even more uh, import to what you're saying about space migration. Yes, that's an interesting question. Uh, we didn't mention this before. 
It's not a question of if we're going to leave the planet. We have to. We're being squeezed okay. off the nest just as birds, when they get too big, are squeezed off the nest. Now, the, maybe the think small people in the nest, one bird says to another, well, if we don't use our wings and we all huddle up together, if we all breathe in unison, we can make it longer. We can last another 10 years in the nest. But come on, we're not. the nest is the place that we're supposed to mature. There's an apocalyptic uh, sense that we have to do something. You, you didn't mention another uh, hard possibility, that uh, nuclear proliferation that uh, there's no question that within 10 or 15 years there are going to be as many as 30 dictator-run countries where people like Idi Amin or uh, Colonel Gaddafi, uh, uh, out of despair, out of uh, no other thing to do, out of uh, we don't give a damn anymore, we'll, we'll push a button. There's talk of international plutonium smuggling Absolutely. even now in the yeah. market. There's no way that you can prevent... Uh, again, the, the only... I was really sh I'm really shocked by the people that are making a big deal out of uh, plutonium smuggling. Because the answers to this are, we got to have more police, we got to have more uh, uh, surveillance, we've got to have more checkups, uh, so that it's obvious that the only way that we can survive, particularly Americans, uh, if we don't migrate, would be in a garrison st uh, society in which we would be uh, in arms against the inevitable uprising of the Africans and the Asians against uh, the have-nots against the haves. And there's no way that Americans uh, are going to give up so, uh, the, the two, you know, the, their two-car uh, and their co-televisions. Uh, I have had some debates with European leftists who say, well, you Americans should cut your uh, consumption in half and you should give... Uh, poor people, uh, you know, half of your color televisions, there's no way that's going to happen. On the other hand, uh, every Asian and every African has every right to want two cars in his garage and uh, a color television in your house, because if we have it, uh, we can't turn around and say, I'm sorry, but we're going to live through. Yeah. Energy, too, where there's just not enough energy, possibly, to give uh, the underdeveloped countries the uh, survival needs, not to mention the material expectations that they have every right to, uh, to demand. I take it you're traveling the country talking about space migration and, and, yes. and many of these other matters. So in a sense, I appreciate, I didn't hear you make this point earlier uh, in a strong way, and I kind of appreciate the fact that you're not uh, uh, selling space migration on a doomsday hypothesis. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, if we're firmly uh, convinced that the apocalypse is at, at hand, maybe a harder sell would be indicated. And another observation is, uh, if you talk about European leftists who say maybe we ought to quit consumption or cut down, do you, uh, do you feel that these kinds of efforts uh, uh, are frivolous? Uh, the idea of international yeah. development, for instance. Uh, I think that uh, growth limitation and uh, lowering energy use and cutting down the speed limits and all that. I think that's wrong because evolution, see the history of evolution, we started underwater, we moved to the shoreline, we got to move faster and faster, deal with more energy, we deal with oxygen, <coughs> we got calcium and built bones and uh, you know, people talk about artifacts, you know, that I use this joke, but uh, the first amoebas that began using bones, they said, well, you know, God had intended, you know, 
it, it, that's the clear thrust and, and trajectory of evolution to uh, to move higher and faster with more precision and more intelligence and more consciousness, including ecological consciousness. Yes, I think you're right that we should be a little more uh, hard hitting about uh, pointing out that we don't have time. To migrate or else. That's right. Yeah, and th everyone doesn't have to migrate. Again, it's those who want to migrate can. Those, those who are living. I want to point out to your listeners that the last five democratic presidents have solved this dilemma by going to war. And so is that irony of, of American politics that it's the Democrats that put us into war. Why? Because war produces a boom economy and uh, eats up the uh, Vietnam heated up the economy. Vietnam uh, wars put more uh, money in operation and. Uh, uh, Wars harness the energies of uh, young people that have to have something to do. Now, uh, John Kennedy saw this, and I, I'm not a great admirer of Kennedy's presidency. Uh, he was much too macho in his foreign policy for my taste. However, I think he will go down in history as one of the great rulers, like uh, Queen Elizabeth or Queen Isabella or, or Prince Henry the Navigator, as he recognized this dilemma. That in order to fulfill his promises to the American people, we're going to grow, and he said to the minority groups, we're going to get your jobs. He knew the only way we could do that outside of war was space. And when he said we're going to be in the moon in a decade, it was partly because of his sophisticated understanding that uh, that was a way of doing it uh, without war. So uh, uh, we got to do something about the fact that uh, 25 or 30 percent of black youth, for example, uh, is unemployed and there's no hope for any sort of a, a meaningful or productive life. Okay, so, here's a good example now of a, of a... If you're worried about crime in the streets, I'm telling you, the solution to it is... Uh, well, I mean, we have... our energies in a, in a space movement. Okay, rather than try to, to deal with some of these more immediate temporal uh, considerations that we can no, manipulate... No, it's, it's uh, not either or. And I, I want okay. to point out again okay. that Newtonian thinking is either or, that it's either yeah. I have this territory or you don't. Yeah. Uh, Einsteinian uh, thinking is uh, both and. Uh, so I'm not saying we should cut down on, uh, on uh, social programs. I'm not saying we should cut down on, uh, on uh, any of our uh, ongoing educational programs. Uh, both and. But, but maybe we could say we ought to examine our priorities and, and maybe plug space migration uh, into such a list priorities, along with international development and many other things. I think the thing that the L5 people, Bob Wilson, Dr. Leary, have all pointed out is in the face of apocalypse, space migration not only is a necessity, but the availability of solar energy from migration then causes the apocalypse not to happen here yeah. by providing energy to overcome it. So the two actually go together. Mm -hmm. it's, it's an either or. Either you leave and it's sa and it's saved, or you don't leave and it's destroyed. Can I ask you a question? By all means. I, I've seen a copy of your book, What Does Woman Want? Have you read it? <laughs> well, Embarrassing question. I'll tell you, the taxi driver told me that he had borrowed the book and he would not Preserve his own life, let it out of his sight. <laughs> <laughs> Taxi driver, huh? That's great. <laughs> um, but I did look at the print, and I was very impressed with the fact that you capitalized uh, the gender, my gender. <laughs>
Well, uh, it's a little more complicated than that. I have been very aware for about uh, seven years of the uh, masculine chauvinism of our language, that uh, most of the, as we all know, most of the general terms are masculine, like mankind and uh, so forth. So as a, uh, a consciousness uh, discipline, because uh, uh, in the earlier years I was brought up to accept uh, male chauvinism, I've tried to be very careful about never using these uh, sloppy terminologies. And I also saw, as all of us see, Thomas Robin, for example, has mentioned it in the foreword to his book, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, the problem that uh, our language is so uh, biased in favor of the uh, male gender. So uh, we invented words that will hopefully, hopefully bridge the way to a better language. Whenever I use the generic term instead of he, I spell it capital S, capital H, small e, meaning both male and female. The word woman in the title of the book, What Does Woman Want, is spelled capital W-O, capital M-A-N. And then we use possesses like, it's the general possesses, you should call it, mankind in his progress forward. Uh, we use the term her, H-I-R, meaning that it's a, it's a combination. Then if you're talking about woman, you use S-H-E or H-E-R and then H-I-S. Is that clear? These are semantic exercises. While we're talking about books, I would like to recommend uh, three writers that I think are saying something today. Thomas Robbins, who wrote the book uh, Another Roadside Attraction, and Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Now, this is the best writing about the 60s. It does, unfortunately doesn't take us forward into the 70s because it ends in an apocalyptic uh, vision. But I, I, if you want to read an intelligent 1960s mind, and there are very few of them around writing books, I urge you to read Thomas Robbins. And then Thomas Pynchon's uh, book, uh, Gravity's Rainbow, I think is probably the best book ever written by anyone in the English language. It, it really takes uh, a view of history and evolution and the merging of science and eroticism, which is very important to the future. And then we have here today in Houston uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who was on this uh, program yesterday. Uh, he, along with Robert Shea, has written uh, the definitive uh, uh, spiritual conspiracy book of all times. It's a trilogy called Illuminatus, and uh, it's a cult item that I think is going to become an uh, extremely influential book in the, in the near future. Hello, this is KPFT. You're on the air. Hello? Hello. Uh, yes, I have a question for Dr. Leary. Hello, what's your name? Uh, this is John Randall. Hello, John. How are you doing? Great. Um, You've talked a lot about space migration, and uh, I'm interested uh, in how you feel about the government's position there. The, obviously, the U.S. government right now is the one that's taking us into space. Uh, do you expect that they'll uh, remain the agents of our migration into space? And how do you feel about the government's ability to carry that out in the manner that you think yeah. it ought to be? Listen, I want to thank you for raising that question, because I meant to mention that earlier, but we got so many things going, I forgot to. So congratulations to you for picking up on that. Now, here's what I, I say about that. Even among the most liberal people, there's the automatic assumption that space belongs to the government. Isn't that right? And somehow that NASA 
own space, and it's NASA is going to decide who's going to go, and you have to be an astronaut, or you have to have a civil service rating. Now, I think that that's a dangerous assumption. Our plans for space migration uh, involve private enterprise, cooperative, collaborative groups of people getting together to build their own world. Now, NASA will have to play a role in this. NASA will have to do the the rocketry. They've already designed and have rolled out the first version of the retro rocket. You know, that's the uh, ship that uh, that launches like a rocket, loads like a truck, and lands like a plane, which makes uh, uh, shuttling cargo up there uh, relatively inexpensive. Now, our attitude is this. NASA should be considered to be like Amtrak or uh, like the Postal Service. It's uh, NASA's job simply to run the trains and the trucks up there. But the government has no right to ask us uh, why we're going or to decide who's going on those trains. We have the money to pay for it. It's our responsibility to build our habitats up there exactly as we want them built, and the government should stay out of this. Uh, now, sure, NASA would have a right to examine our luggage and make sure we're not smuggling uh, atom bombs up there, just as they now check us when we go on airplanes. But uh, we must do divest from our thinking the notion that the taxpayer is going to pay for this or that the government's going to uh, to run it. It's got to be a private enterprise. Now, I don't mean capitalist uh, uh, absentee ownership. The people that go up there should own their five acres and own their share of their own world. And they pay their cargo and they pay their fare to go up and to come back. But uh, the government's role is uh, advisory and uh, in no way should control the space migration habitats. Remember, we're just building condominiums up there. And just as uh, we can build condominiums down here without the government uh, doing it or taxpayers paying for it, that's the model that we should carry up there. We're very much against centralized socialism taking over. You know, the Russians have plans now, and we'll have space colonies up there within five years. And you better believe that those space colonies will not be uh, designed to encourage uh, cultural... Uh, experimentation and new lifestyles. Uh, so it's very important as an American tradition and a Houston, Texas tradition of independence and freedom that we keep the government out of it except in their role of, uh, of uh, busing us up there. Okay, I have a question. Specifically, how would you guide someone who is considering getting involved in this very space shuttle program that you're uh, talking about? I have the opportunity, I'm strongly considering applying to the mission specialist uh, astronaut. There's, they're going to take something like 15 uh, positions and they're going to be uh, used as astronauts to shuttle people up and down. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm seriously considering uh, applying for that. Now, of course, there's a lot of other people who are going to apply and my particular chances are of a certain percentage that's yeah. probably fairly low. But would you encourage me to do such a thing? Absolutely. Get all the training you can. At any time, see, what we're going to do is you, you get all the training you can and learn all you can, and within two or three years, if you, if you really are good at it, we'll offer you a better job working with us. <laughs> but remember, there are two aspects, the, the rocketry, the uh, retro rockets, all that part of it, we're not interested in. See, if... Think of it this way. A bunch of us, a few thousand of us are going to go down to Jamaica. We're going to go down to uh, some island. We're going to build a new uh, commune down there for 10,000 people. 
Now, we have to fly down there with Pan Am or TWA. I don't want to know anything about rockets. I don't want to know anything about a T how a TWA 747 works. That's not my job. My job is to help organize the colonists who are going to build a condominium, which is not going to be in Jamaica or uh, the Virgin Islands, but it's going to be up there. But any help that you can give us, I'm serious, that within two, two years, maybe even within six months, we're going to be in the position of buying away from NASA the younger and uh, most imaginative uh, specialists because they can come in with us as uh, full partners instead of being bureaucratic civil servants, you know, obediently uh, working with the bureaucracy. But my advice is, by all means, get all the training you can. But I'm, uh, I guess I have been following the whole night uh, the discussion. When you say we, which group specifically are you talking about? Well, I explained that there are many of us who are banded together under the collective umbrella of futurism. This includes Barbara Hubbard's, uh, Barbara Max Hubbard's uh, Committee for the Future in uh, Washington. This involves uh, the L5 Society. I'm not speaking for them, but I'm including them as uh, part of the futurist movement. There are many futurist groups, all of whom agree that space migration is inevitable and soon. I'm also working, as I said earlier, with several managers of large uh, industries and consultants to industries who are going to uh, help us keep this non-capitalist and non-socialist. That is going to keep it a free cooperative enterprise. Good. Thanks for your question, and I hope I want to tell you one final thing. You know, of about uh, I don't know how many there were. Let's say there were twelve astronauts who walked on the moon. At least half of them have come back, as you know, mystics and raving about uh, the. Uh, they were the first post-terrestrials. They were the first ones that could look back on this planet and see it as a little blue agate. Now, most of these men are now in favor of, of civilian control of space migration. Rusty Swigert, to give you one, who's published in the Coevolution Quarterly, his opinion that uh, space migration should be civilian and not uh, government or military. Okay, good luck. Okay, thank you, sir. Let me ask you one question about that call. That was a good one, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Obviously, um, governmental sources and things like that should not necessarily determine who goes up there. The question is, how do we determine who goes up there, or what is the opportunity? offered for people to go along. Well, see, who's doing the offering? It's we. Who decided who would, who would migrate from Europe to America? That's the model you must keep in mind all the time. It's not a big jump, migrating into space. It's been made to, to seem that way because of Buck Rogers and Star Trek and uh, pseudo-militaristic uh, space uh, movies. But actually, it's just it's, it's less dangerous than the move from Europe to America was. Now, who decided who, who migrated from Europe over here? It was families and friends. It was the pilgrim mothers and fathers who, who shared a collective vision. Uh, who uh, determined who would migrate from New England across the plains to the west? It was the Mormons who decided to do it. it was, there were hundreds of kooky cults and psychedelic hippy-dippy religious groups in the 1840s and 50s who, were, who backed the migration west. So uh, it's always been that way. It can't be a government or it can't be a, a, a big monolithic civil service selection. It's going to be self-selection 
Those that want to go and are willing to invest their time and energy are going to link up with the people of similar minds who share their vision of they can be vegetarian bisexuals, want to get their own thing together. Fine. Do it. Uh, but it's going to be self-selection and a small group linkage. Uh, it's always been the way everything has migrated uh, and mutated in human history. So we'll just buy our ticket and make our move as we see fit. But we, meaning a group of like-minded people, individuals, and, and you got to work. You, you got to work hard to do it because uh, there are no free lunches here. Uh, we're not going to give you a ticket. You join us, and we'll put you in touch with like-minded people. But uh, we've got to do it together. Shall we uh, listen to some more listeners? Yeah. Yeah, that last caller almost uh, asked the same questions I'd like to ask. I'd like to go a little deeper yeah. into the uh, uh, the financial. Uh, aspect of space migration. Where can this money come from? I know it's going to take vast amounts of money to get there. Uh, once we get there, I'm sure that, you know, it's going to be much cheaper after we want to get into space because we're going to have, you know, vast amounts of energy and uh, all kinds of beautiful, wonderful things coming right there in space, floating right along there beside you. All these raw materials right, right there. Yeah. But how are we going to get into space if we don't use our government and big business? The demographic economics is very interesting. If, um, if you have 10,000 people that are banding together and investing their money in what is essentially a real estate operation, a collective real estate operation, uh, 10,000 people each uh, raising $100,000 puts you into uh, you know talking distance, particularly if mass production of retro rockets will, will be accelerated. Uh, so that uh, what we tell people is, if you buy a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house right now, I don't know how you put a down payment on it. If you have uh, uh, the equity in, in, in an ordinary single-dwelling house in the suburbs of any American city right now, in 10 or 15 years you can trade that in for your, your four or five acres up there. Uh, now that that's the, the the simple economics. The 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 more practical economics is this: that uh, solar satellite stations, which will be beaming energy down here by a microwave, will pay all of these projects back uh, within a matter of uh, I don't know five or six years. Also, the, the manufacturing facilities uh, that will take place in space because of zero gravity vacuum atmosphere. Uh, it's called the Third Industrial Revolution. Almost all of our complicated electronic and manufacturing techniques will be facilitated. It's literally cheaper to build many items up there and drop them back down. So the space migration is going to pay off just as uh, migration to the New World uh, paid off uh, very quickly in the early days. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, right. Okay, well, I can see that. Yeah, so uh, eventually uh, most families or people who want to go will just uh, sell their homes here, which won't be any problem at all, since it's getting so crowded. Yeah, and real estate's, uh, you know, booming in, in right. the Houston area. What is it, 15% a year? That's what it is in San Diego. It's terrible. I yeah. know that. Uh, I do, I'm fortunate to own my own home now. Uh, I guess I could just hang on, yeah. Yeah, I can see it coming. 
Right. Okay, well, thank okay. you. Okay. <laughs> now, we'll send a Salem's around tomorrow to sign you up. Okay, good night. I'd like to uh, propose an alternative uh, evolutionary scenario for your uh, comments, see what you have to say about it. Good. I was interested in your thoughts about robothood and post-robothood, and it seems like uh, the characteristic of the condition of post-robothood is the ability to understand and to affect changes in your robot nature. Right. Now, uh, if you view evolution as a goal-directed system, as you say, the goal of the evolutionary system is greater specialization, uh, greater energy consumption, and we can see technology as the last stage in uh, man's evolutionary development. So, uh, Well, no, I wouldn't buy last. It's the next. Well, okay, yeah. right. Well, we're in the technology stage now, so yeah. it's the present result. Right. Uh, now, this goal has so far begun to kill the world through the byproducts of technology, through pollution, radiation, and such. Why not allow the post-robothood consciousness to alter the goal, since it can understand its nature and affect changes in it? Why not allow that post-robothood to alter the goal of evolution to maintaining equilibrium with nature and maintaining man's position via his natural world and natural environment, as opposed to discarding it as man discarded the seas and, in effect, take control of our evolution and live with the situation as we have it? Absolutely. I encourage you to do that. See, so, so not everyone's going to go. Uh, according to uh, Gerard O'Neill, who's the mastermind philosopher of all of this, and whose ideas I'm parodying in a very robotic fashion tonight, according to O'Neill, if his timetable is uh, kept, by the year 2020, the population curve will start dipping. That is, there'll be more people leaving the planet than are being born. If this happens within about 20 years after that, let's say uh, the year 2050, and that's within your lifetime. Right. Uh, the planet Earth will be back to uh, less than 2 billion, perhaps between 1 and 2 billion people. In other words, the planet Earth will be back to the pastoral, rural, forest state that it was like 200 years ago. So our plans for the planet Earth are that those who want to stay down here, the pollution comes from overpopulation right. and from the, uh, the frantic energy surge down here. Right. So... We're taking most of the migrants up there, those that want to stay down here, as uh, as preservers and curators of our former culture, uh, will be honored and will be helped, and uh, uh, the pollution, uh, Mother Earth will bandage up and, and green over the strip mining and uh, the pollution very quickly. She will survive. Yeah. But since uh, evolution is energy consumptive in its uh, more advanced stages, no, I would say, you said that twice, and I wanted to catch you the first time. Okay. It's energy productive. Because you can't consume what you can't produce. It's energy, it's energy transforming. Okay. And the more energy we, we transform, uh, the higher our, uh, our revolutionary status. Right. Uh, do you foresee us uh, continuing to rob the, uh, the terrestrial resources of the Earth for energy? See, your term rob is a, uh, a loaded emotional word, which I don't accept. When RNA sends us, see, RNA is ruthless. When, R when DNA says 
get me some calcium. Well, I tell you, RNA goes out there and it robs all the calcium it can get to build a bone. Uh, DNA is, in that sense, exploitive. That it, it, it has to expand, it has to keep moving, and it's exploitive. It's, it's, it's negatively exploitive, only if you don't understand it. So I don't think we're robbing anything. The, the, the purpose of, of a space migration is to to get us up there where energy is free and natural resources uh, do not dislodge other forms of life. The best way to get us back to a pure, natural, rural, pastoral earth is to get most of us up there and to get all the manufacturing and the energy production up there. But what about the massive entropy debt that will be occurring by the Well, the, the whole entropy notion uh, and the conservation of energy these are 19th century concepts which went along with the Protestant aesthetic. Uh, there are new concepts about entropy now, negative entropy, that negative entropy is intelligence, and that there's a, a very interesting dialogue between entropy and, uh, and uh, anti-entropy, so that uh, I think it's all balanced nicely. I don't think we have to worry about these things if we, if we see our role as evolutionary servants to get things moving faster and, and uh, farther, um, these moral issues of robbing and so forth, I think uh, we can do away with. There are no good guys or bad guys. There are just people who understand the evolutionary situation and those that we have to help understand the evolutionary situation. Well, do you, do you foresee this as being a continuing process as possibly uh, forever and, and interminable? Because as I, uh, I'm not a PhD, but as I understand the concept of negative entropy, negative entropy is a localized phenomenon, whereas in the universe as a whole, that creates an entropy debt which will ultimately be uh, equalized. Well, instinctively, I've never agreed with that uh, with that definition. I, I think it comes from the the Protestant ethic of the 19th century, and intellectually, I'm now told by quantum physicists that uh, no, the the anti-entropy situation uh, gets more exciting as you probe the nucleus of the atom. As a matter of fact, quantum physicists tell us now that the basic element, the basic particles of energy matter are bits. Bits of what? They're bits of information. You could define the entire universe with all the galaxies as being like an enormous brain. That every energy process, even the inorganic and the, the quantum and the the atomic and the electronic and uh, even the subnuclear are uh, bits of, of information or of intelligence. So that the deeper we probe into uh, the physics of nature, uh, the more anti-entropy we discover. And we discover that, the, you know, the, the, the basic nuclear particles are particles of intelligence uh, and part of uh, that, the, that, the, that the universe is basically a, a, an intelligent consciousness. Have you been uh, in any dialogues or contact with uh, Dr. Von Bertalanzi? Yeah, I, I uh, know of his work. I, I'm more in tune with uh, the works of John Archibald Wheeler from the physics department in Princeton and people like Jack Sarfati and uh, Saul Paul Sirag and people in Berkeley who are involved in uh, some very exciting uh, quantum uh, physics experiments. And I would urge anyone who is interested in the future of, of where evolution is going beyond even our bodies, to write the uh, the physics consciousness group. That's eleven fifty five Jones Street, Suite five hundred six. 
San Francisco 94109. These are quantum physicists who are coming out with uh, new theories of the consciousness of basic elemental particles is farther out than any Hindu text or any uh, science fiction book. And I'll repeat that address. It's the Physics Consciousness Group, 1155 Jones Street, Suite 506, San Francisco, 94109. And you get your mind blown by what the quantum physicists uh, are up to. Thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Uh, Hello. Hello. Yeah, this is Timothy Leary. This is Robert Riskelman. I'd like to know what your sources of income are and if there's an element of charlatanism in it. Well, I, I make uh, money by lecturing at colleges, and uh, I'm not making a lot of money. And I don't know what you mean by charlatan. Am I in this for the money? No. I could make a lot more money by doing other things. Do I believe in what I'm saying? Yeah, I sure do. Uh, but ask me some more questions. Uh, that's what I was interested in. Thank you very much. Good evening. How are you? Yeah, how are you doing? Very good. Uh, I wanted to ask one thing. The last part that you talked about uh, in saying that the entire universe was an intelligent being, is this kind of a Chardin yeah. Uh, notion? Yeah. Uh, and then the one other thing I wanted to know is the DNA programming itself, uh, it makes it sound like DNA is uh, completely in the driver's seat, and I wondered if perhaps DNA wasn't also affected perhaps by the whole universe. Yeah, absolutely. And is is this a, something that's like associated with not only time, but also space, like position in the universe? Yeah, absolutely. comment, number one, on your first question, uh, Chardin's uh, philosophy, which was powerful but somewhat vague, is now being supported and confirmed by the most advanced research in atomic physics and nuclear physics and quantum physics. That's the exciting thing about uh, the uh, Chardin movement, that it's being tested and confirmed experimentally. Now, the second question about DNA, yeah, DNA is obviously an intermediate form of intelligence. you got to say that DNA is smart because she's kept herself alive on this planet for two and a half billion years and is showing no signs of uh, being licked. So that uh, DNA is an intelligence uh, compared to which the human brain is, is a simple uh, but effective uh, robot uh, force. But DNA itself and the biological life itself is again, a servant of, uh, of nuclear intelligence. The quantum physicists use a phrase which I, I really love and it has really blown my mind. They, they talk about the quantum projection booth from which are projected the atomic uh, and the electronic and eventually the complex protein molecular uh, structures that make up uh, life. Okay, now... The DNA itself, in its complexity and etc., I've often read that in some way sci some scientists are associating aging process itself with this uh, after it's, uh, you know, just millions and millions and millions of times of duplicating 
Commander, I know that when uh, Robert Anton Wilson was in town and was pretty much giving uh, your neurologic uh, a lecture, uh, he brought up the idea of, of increasing the life, say that once you've reached the first hundred, that at that point you'll probably be given the chance to go for the second one. And yeah. If that's through that. Now, how, is there... Will DNA itself actually be able to evolve to support that life, or is that going to take the robot mind helping it along? Will we have to synthesize Well, I think DNA is programmed us to get to a point where we can understand how to control the aging process. Genetic engineering will, be, will allow us, in, in, certainly within your lifetime, and probably in the next 10 or 15 years, to uh, dial and tune the DNA uh, aging loop to the age that you want to be. Now, I'd like to recommend a book which has just come out, which is the up-to-date uh, uh, picture on longevity and life extension. It's called Pro-Longevity. That's Pro-Longevity. It's written by Rosenfeld, who was a former science editor of Life magazine. Uh, it's published by, uh-oh, I forget. But you can get it at any bookstore because it's hot. He's been on the lecture circuit and the Johnny Carson show. His name is Rosenfeld, and uh, the book is called Prolongevity. And that's the most up-to-date statement uh, on immortality and life extension. And I think you'll be convinced after you read that book that, again, it's not a question of can we live forever, but how soon are we going to get it going? Ah, and as I hang up the phone here, and thank you very much, I'd like you to just say over the air, if you have ever met any extraterrestrials or know of any around, or what, if there are, you know, what, what are they doing here, how do they like it? Yeah, I think that the astronauts are, are post-terrestrials. They've left the planet and come back. I hope there are more, but I don't believe in UFO passive uh, theories that uh, they're going to come to us. We're down here in the water, and we got to climb out of the 4,000-mile atmosphere swamp and get up there to join them. And who's them? Them is us in the future. Okay, good night. Good night. What kind of concretely are you are you doing now? How are you spending your time in this uh, in this role that, that you're playing? Well, as I said several times, I consider myself to be an evolutionary agent. I think that media, electromagnetic media, television, radio, uh, are uh, instruments of the DNA code. See, the the, the use by the nervous system of the airwaves and the television uh, frequencies. It's not to sell soap or it's not to sell uh, Pepsi-Cola. Uh, electromagnetic impulses are triggers to the, uh, to the DNA of those who are ready to mutate. They're the mutational signals. If you study how, uh, how insects, uh, for example, move from the cocoon or larval stage to uh, the post-larval stage. It's always radiation. It's always electromagnetic signals. Uh, what, what sends the birds south in the, uh, in the fall? It's the angle of the sunlight, which uh, hits the bird's retina and then is transmitted to uh, DNA program. Hey, baby, it's time to head south. And, of course, the birds follow pathways which are ele electromagnetic. That's uh, just how to... How, how does a monarch butterfly uh, migrate from uh, California uh, to to the hills in Mexico? I can tell you how. There are red line 
radiation belts that are, are like neon lights that, that they just follow. Uh, we don't pick them up because our nervous systems are not yet at the state of the sixth circuit uh, neuroelectric uh, reception. So what I'm doing is I'm using electromagnetic energies to mutate people. Uh, in my lectures, I use the nine uh, muscles of my vocal cords amplified by electricity to hit the eardrums of the listeners which, with signals that are then transmitted to the nervous systems, that's then tra transmitted to their RNA and to the DNA, telling them it's time to mutate. At the sound of the bleep, uh, if you listen carefully, I will mutate you. From the sound of the bleep, okay, bleep. You are not a terrestrial. It's time for you to leave the earth. Now, uh, one out of ten, one out of three will hear that message and say, yeah, it makes sense. Others won't because they're not ready to mutate. It's not, it's not programmed the nervous system to be in the first wave. There's always a first wave and a second wave and a third wave in a mutation migration. I send another mutational signal. I say, at the sound of the bleep, I'm going to mutate about 10% of you. Okay? Bleep. You never need die. Scratch death from your appointment book. Now, some people say, oh, what do you mean? Death is the meaning of life. Okay, it's all right. Uh, but 10%, 20% are hearing the signal. Those who are ready to uh, to uh, use their brains to uh, decipher the uh, the death programming will uh, accept the notion that they need not die. To summarize, I'm an evolutionary agent using electromagnetic energies to broadcast evolutionary signals. And the signals are leave the planet, get smarter, and uh, learn how to live for as long as you want. You're spending really full-time now transmitting these messages. Well, full-time is a little... <laughs> I try to party as much as I can. <laughs> I try to get eight hours sleep. Uh, I perform the terrestrial functions. You have to think when you uh, move into the more advanced circuits of the nervous system, you can only do that if you get the first four circuits down. You can't be worried about economic problems. You can't be worried about social problems of shame or public opinion or what will uh, City Hall think. Uh, you've got to be very clever and smart in avoiding the traps that will allow you to get put in prison or will allow you to uh, get uh, immobilized. So I, part of my time, I have to take care of my body. I have to take care of uh, my terrestrial survival uh, needs. Uh, I'm starting a nationally syndicated radio show, which is called Conversations with Higher Intelligence. Uh, I'm uh, working on an uh, audio-visual presentation that will go along with my lectures, which will amplify and intensify the, the uh, vocal messages I'm sending out, and hopefully will mutate higher percentages of the audiences that I talk to. I'm working with uh, a group of managers who have access to some of the top industries in the country, uh, I think that management is very important. You can have good ideas. I think everyone who's had a mystical experience or a rebirth experience has had some clue uh, to, to the genetic uh, code, has some uh, understanding uh, that we are involved in an evolutionary process. But the jump between the, the knowledge, which came to millions in the 60s, who turned on, the jump from that receptive knowledge to the point where you can talk about it and transmit it accurately and logically, as Robert Anton Wilson can, for example. That's a big jump. 
But even Robert Anton Wilson's logical and uh, intellectual uh, presentation of a revolutionary situation is is uh, is uh, is not the answer. It's got to be marketed. It's got to be distributed. It's got to be amplified. It's got to be broadcast so that everyone on the planet can can hear this message. Now, the people that put things together are managers, and right now I'm trying to assemble a group of about 12 managers. Managers are people that are successful somehow putting things together, putting people together. Managers have to be very pure in the sense that they're not doing it for their own ego uh, uh, rewards and not trying to rip off. I'm trying to get managers together who will manage the next evolutionary movement because it does involve management. Someone had to get Columbus's ships together. Someone had to outfit them. Someone had to get the water and the food. Someone had to recruit the, recruit the uh, sailors. Uh, that sounds that sounds uh, rather social or even crass. I want to tell you that that RNA sees the management intelligence of DNA. Every time you, a cell is built in your body, you had some good management. You had RNA managers who went out and found the phosphorus and found the calcium to build a bone cell. Or went out and found the carbon or found the uh, particular amino acids that were necessary to build whatever DNA needed to uh, get her moving to the next uh, position. So I'm trying to find managers and put them together. My, my role is catalytic at this moment. My uh, job is to... Uh, Number one, inform people of what's happening. And uh, because I have a lot of charisma and because I have a lot of electric magnetism that people want to listen to me and hear me, and I'm very uh, very modest about it. It has nothing to do with me. It's because my signal is true and is uh, genetically accurate. Uh, I must have no illusions about that. But people come to me, and then I can put managers and I can put uh, high-energy people together to build the molecule that's going to take us off the planet. Because it's all molecular. It's all the human alchemy of putting people together to build up the uh, larger syncretic groups that are going to uh, move us and the species to the next stage of evolution. The Dr. Eastern Leary, this, this might sound a little bit facetious, but uh, I'm well, going to ask it. it. Yeah, okay. Um, I understand that mutations are generally brought about by the... Uh, Influence of cosmic radiation on uh, genetic material. Are you a cosmic ray? <laughs> no, uh, I, I'm a uh, DNA-motivated robot who has been, uh, I think, mutated by uh, some light waves kicking around. No, I'm a... I'm a domesticated primate uh, who's uh, mutating and uh, playing the, uh, say, I'm a broadcaster from station WDNA. <laughs> uh, I don't have any rayettes either. <laughs> See, one of the lessons I learned from the 60s, uh, and it's all been invaluable, is, sure, the FBI outwitted us in the uh, 60s by uh, dirty tricks. Okay. But that's not good guys or bad guys. Uh, they were just smarter than we were. I think we've got to broadcast more effectively than ABC and, and uh, NBC. We've got to, uh, and we should be able to, because I think we're smarter and we're purer in our uh, motives. So that, uh, by all means, build up the biggest audience ratings you can and uh, broadcast as widely and as, uh, as uh, intensely as you can. I'm, I'll back you any way I can. Great, great. Uh, you know, uh, that 
that's kind of funny that you should be talking about uh, professional type management and that sort of thing because I always had the feeling that people like Andy Warhol and yourself were uh, about a thousand times more adroit at uh, operating the subtle fingers of the media than uh, people like myself who were just running controls behind the scenes and making up uh, ads and uh, all that sort of thing. I had the feeling that uh, people like you and Warhol and there were a number of others as well were actually on to something about being able to manipulate their public image in a very creative and useful way. It's interesting to me to hear you feel that you're still inadequate in that direction. Well, I confess, past inadequacies, I'm getting better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm learning. I spent, uh, in the seven months I've been out of prison, I spent an enormous amount of time around radio studios and uh, with radio people. And I'm very slowly uh, completing an apprenticeship in how broadcasting is done because it's complex. I think radio uh, is uh, the most important medium right now. Television, as we all know, is too cumbersome. It's too expensive, and there's too much writing. It's too uptight, uh, and it's too uh, network-oriented. But uh, radio, particularly with the FM boom and the public broadcasting boom, you know, each each uh, commercial station now has a narrow target. Uh, the you know they're broadcasting to the 18 to 23 and a half year old male. Well, that's great. The more uh, specific our signals can be, and the more aware we are as to the audience that we're talking to, then uh, the more precise it's going to be. So uh, I'm very interested in particularly FM radio, and uh, as I say, I'm going to start a, uh, a nationally syndicated show, which uh, I hope will get around the country. The secret is that it's one-to-one. -one. It's just completely intimate. You don't yeah. listen to the radio unless you're alone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there have been some questions about continuing our conversation, and I wanted to tell the listeners that I will be lecturing at the University of Houston on January 26th, 27th, and 28th. These programs are sponsored by the University of Houston Program Council. At that time, I hope that uh, I can meet personally uh, the people in Houston who are interested in space migration and intelligence increase and life extension. I enjoy being here in Houston. It's a it's a future city, like any mutational uh, city or or group. It has its uh, problems, but uh, I think Houston is a uh, is looking towards the future, and I look forward to coming back January 26th, 27th, and 28th to the University of Houston. Thank you. Yes, well, thank you very much, Timothy Leary. Certainly have enjoyed it. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So, I now learn that Dr. Timothy Leary performed at the University of Houston in January of 1977. And although it was the school from which I got my law degree, and although I was actually living in Houston at the time, well, I had no idea about his appearance. Basically, uh, I was just running myself ragged trying to make a living, which is uh, probably how most of us have to live for the majority of our lives right now. Hopefully, the uh, drum beats of new social orders all around the planet are at long last beginning to be heard once again, and uh, maybe life won't be quite so uh, difficult for us, huh? 
Also, uh, I find it interesting that the last thing that Dr. Leary and his questioners talked about was the importance of a one-to-one communication medium, uh, and they were talking, of course, about the radio. Now, can you imagine how excited they would have been had they known that by today, the excitement of massive social change movements all over the world is being webcast uh, in the form of livestream.com videos that are coming directly from the demonstration sites all over the country. Not to mention YouTube, all of the iDevices, and of course podcasts that cover almost every human interest you can name, with hundreds if not thousands of new programs sprouting up every day. Thanks to the internet, uh, wireless devices, and all the new free tech, well, it's a new world for mass communication, and fortunately, I don't think that the establishment gets it yet, so uh, let's make the most of it while we can. You know, it's sometimes spooky at all the coincidences that come up when I more or less randomly pick a talk to play here in the salon. I've had this Timothy Leary material here for a couple of years now. Uh, thanks to Dennis Berry, who was the custodian of the Leary Archive at the time that I got it, and uh, to Bruce Damer, who got the two of us together and facilitated getting the digital files to me. And so I could have played this talk at any time, but for some reason I'm doing it now, and uh, maybe I'm reading a lot into some of Dr. Leary's remarks, but parts of uh, what they were discussing sounded to me as if uh, it had been recorded just last night in Liberty Park in New York, or in any of the hundreds of other cities around the world right now. And remember, this interview was recorded in November 1976, less than two weeks after Jimmy Carter won the presidency of the U.S. You know, a lot has happened in the intervening years, and uh, yet when they got talking in this uh, long-ago interview about the unemployment situation of uh, young black people being so high, well, they could have been talking about what's still going on right now. And so... uh, When somebody acts surprised at all of the pent-up frustration coming from the uh, Occupy demonstrations around the world, well, they just haven't been paying attention because uh, this frustration has been building up for a long time in the 99% of us who have to work for a living. Now, getting back to the part of the interview that we just listened to, I also found it quite interesting to hear Dr. Leary talk about getting governments out of controlling outer space, which uh, by default, more or less, due to budget constraints, uh, seems to be exactly what is happening with uh, all of the new civilian space operations taking place. He was uh, a little ahead of his time on many things, but that's certainly one of Timothy Leary's dreams that uh, seems to be in the process of taking place. And while I've said this in past podcasts, uh, one of the things that I disagree with Timothy Leary about is his idea of space migration. But because one of my dearest friends, uh, Michael Shields, sees it differently, I should confess that, well, I haven't yet read the material from the L5 Society, and uh, so I'm going to give him a chance to add his two cents here uh, as well. And uh, here's part of what Michael had to say in a recent email to me. Lozo, love the new Leary 76 material and your evaluation of Obama. Right on. I first met Tim when I produced a performance talk with him and H. Keith Henson of the L5 Society at the University of California, San Diego in 1977 on these topics. Stuart Brand finally did a book on space colonies in 1977, too. 
And uh, by the way, I'll link to that in the program notes for this podcast, uh, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. Now, uh, getting back to Michael's email, he went on, Last year, Stephen Hawking said the main activity of humanity should be building backup copies of the biosphere slash Gaia as some kind of destruction is the fate of 99 plus percent of human-like intelligence emerging in the galaxy. Okay, Lozo, hope we can talk about this soon. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) And uh, so I guess that in fairness, I should hold my technical reservations in abeyance until at least after I read Brand's book and uh, a few others that discuss the possibility of human space colonies. I guess that uh, in my heart, I don't want to see us humans infesting the galaxy until, well, first we figure out how to get along with each other here on Earth. But my main reasons for uh, not thinking that space colonies are very practical come largely from my conversations with Dr. Bruce Damer, who has uh, done a lot of work with NASA. He uh, actually knows men who walked on the moon, and he's had to deal with the realities of uh, keeping even a small number of humans alive in space, not to mention the uh, physical problems that they encounter when coming back to Earth after six months up there. So, as far as our species uh, physically leaving this planet goes, well, I simply don't see it. What I do see, however, is uh, the space migration that is already well underway, and right this moment, you and I are both taking part in it. I'm talking about our migration into cyberspace. You know, within another decade, it has been predicted that uh, over one half of all humans alive will be connected to the Internet and that the power required to run that vast electronic interconnection of mines will, uh, well, it'll be about 20% of all the world's power generated. Interestingly, uh, I've also heard that our bodies use about 20% of our caloric intake each day uh, just to power our brains. Well, I could go on, but uh, I'll let you take that idea on your own little journey into metaphor land. However, uh, I hasten to add that uh, my guess is that both of those power estimations are probably not much more than good guesses. Now, I wonder if you were as surprised as I was when uh, one of the men asking questions uh, very seriously asked Leary the question about whether he saw an apocalypse on the horizon. Now, what got me is not that uh, some people are thinking those thoughts right now, but that some serious-minded people were worrying about it back in 1976, too. Actually, uh, at least it seems to me, we humans are always sensing a coming apocalypse uh, simply because life for us is constantly changing. So, you know, we're always coming to the end of something or some phase of life, but each ending also seems to bring on some new and wonderful beginning. It was uh, really sad for me when my children left home uh, to start out on their own, but now I have these wonderful grandchildren who bring me all joy and no responsibility. (laughs) So outside of the fact that I had to get a little older to make that change, uh, well, it's all good, as the legendary John Sinclair says about my closest ally, cannabis. Now, before I go, there is one request that I want to pass along, and that comes from fellow Saloner, Rak Razam, who is uh, working on an ayahuasca documentary. Here's what he writes. I'm hoping you might be able to help track down some Terrence audio. And, And here's the quote he's looking for. And then, if you've taken enough DMT, something happens, for which there are no words. Uh, And then McKenna goes on to say, 
A membrane is rent, and you are propelled into this place, and language cannot describe it accurately. Therefore, I will inaccurately describe it. The rest is now lies. <laughs> now, Rack goes on and says, I think it's from the time and mind talk, which there are ample transcripts of on the net. But I'm looking for the actual audio of Terrence talking to sample in the forthcoming documentary, Aya Awakenings. Any help tracking down those audio quotes will be much appreciated. So, uh, if you know where to find that audio, I'm sure that Rack would uh, greatly appreciate hearing from you. And uh, I'll put a link to his documentary trailer for you to check out if you want. And you can also find a way there to contact him if you uh, find an answer to his query. Now to close, I'm just going to briefly mention the fact that the Occupy demonstrations all over the world on Saturday are a good sign that people everywhere are joining in. Actually, uh, I think we should give credit to the demonstrators during the Arab Spring as well as the brave Spanish demonstrators who have been at it since May. And uh, their risks and sacrifices paid off with Madrid holding the largest of the Occupy the World demonstrations, uh, which were uh, recently held on the 15th of October. And Madrid had over 500,000 people uh, that showed up to protest the fat cats who are pushing down the 99% of us who are, well, just trying to get along as best we can. Unfortunately, uh, the police in the U.S. acted very unprofessionally in many locations with the uh, New York City police running over protesters with motorcycles and charging the crowd with their horses and injuring numerous demonstrators. Even here in quiet little San Diego, the uh, police essentially rioted and acted like barbarians when they attacked the demonstrators and tore down their tents. And I also saw police brutality in Denver and Boston, uh, which, uh, by the way, also have live feeds of their demonstrations that you can watch at uh, OccupyStream.com. And uh, there you can choose from a couple of dozen live streams from various cities around the world. And so as to keep you in the mood for the long struggle that has now just begun, I'm going to uh, close this three-podcast series with Timothy Leary by playing a couple of sound bites from the Occupy Wall Street demonstrations this past weekend. And I'm doing it mainly because I'm quite sure that if Dr. Leary were alive today, he'd be right down there with the demonstrators. Now, the first voice that you'll hear is that of Sergeant Shamar Thomas, who is a U.S. Marine, and he served in Iraq. And this is the audio from a clip that I posted on my personal blog, which you can find at LorenzoHaggerty.com. And in the video, you can see that Sergeant Thomas is directly confronting about 30 New York policemen. And uh, here is what this brave Marine had to say to those officers. Have a good night, guys. <laughs> see it, baby. They don't lie. Let's go. They don't lie. They don't lie. They don't lie, tough guy. This is not a war zone. This is not a war zone. These are unarmed people. It doesn't make you tough to hurt these people. It doesn't make you tough to hurt these people. It doesn't. I don't care. I don't care about these people. I, I put in my word, it doesn't lie. It does not make you tough to hurt these people. There's nothing tough about it. Nothing. If you want to go fight, go to Iraq and Afghanistan. If you want to be here hurting U.S. citizens, where is that in the contract? Where is that in the contract? Leave these people alone. They're U.S. 
citizens. U.S. citizens. U.S. citizens. U.S. It does not make you want to do this to them. It doesn't. Stop hurting these people, man. Why y'all do this to our people? I've been to Iraq 14 months for my people. You come over and hurt them. They don't have guns. They don't have guns. They don't. Why are you hurting these people? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why do you sleep at night? There is no honor in this. There is no honor in this. There is no honor in this, man. There is no honor in this shit. There is no honor in this shit. There is no honor in what you're doing to these people. No honor. How do you do this to people? How do you do this to people? How do you sleep at night doing this to people? How do you do this to people? How? You're here to protect them! You're here to protect us! Protect us! Why are you hurting U.S. citizens? This is the United States of America! Why are you hurting people? If you want to go kill and hurt people, go to Iraq! Why are you hurting U.S. citizens? Why? What sense does it make? Do you get honor out of this? Do you get honor at hitting people with batons? Is that what you get? Why are you doing this? We're just trying to move This is unbelievable. That y'all are doing this to people. That y'all are doing this to people. Why are y'all doing this to people? No, I know that everybody's not bad. Why are y'all doing this to people? Y'all walk around in riot gear like this is a war. These people don't have guns. How can I not act crazy when y'all are hurting the people that I protected? My whole family protected this country. I understand, but I'm not out here trying to hurt these people. I'm not walking around trying to hurt but your, your history doesn't... Who's in Iraq with you? So why, so why do you allow this? Why are they walking around trying to hurt people? Let's go, folks. Keep walking. Keep walking. Please, I'm asking you nice walk down the block, please. And I can't speak. Y'all want to shut me up. Y'all want to shut me up. Why are y'all walking like this? There's a war going on. Nobody has guns. Why are y'all treating people like this? Why are y'all treating people like this? Why are y'all gearing up right. like this is war? Right. This is not right. war! Let's go, folks. We can, uh, this is not war, 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 please! Why are y'all acting like this? No one has guns! It takes a tough guy to act like this! Let's go, folks. Let's go, folks. Let's go, folks. Let's go, folks. Nobody is trying to hurt you guys! There are no bullets flying out here! There are no bullets flying! How tough are you? How tough are you? There is no honor in hurting unarmed civilians. So get no respect. What did you see tonight that bothered you? I, I was here on October 5th. I saw them beating people, un, people that had nothing to do with anything, just grabbing people out the crowd. There is no honor in that. My mom, my father, everybody has served in Iraq, Afghanistan. Well, I did 14 months in um, Iraq. My uh, father was in Afghanistan. My mother did a year in Iraq. We fought for this country. I don't come home. I'm in New York City. I am from New York City, and these cops are hurting people that I, I fought to protect. There's no reason for this. There's no, there's no honor to hurt an unarmed civilian, and I won't let it happen. Have a good night. Yeah! 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 Yeah!
York, Sergeant Shamar Thomas. Oh, I don't know what they're doing. They walked away. They're scared. So how was that for telling the cops how the cow ate the cabbage? <laughs> if there was a medal given for demonstrating, I think Sergeant Thomas should most definitely receive one. In my opinion, he is uh, the true voice of the American people. And in closing, I want to play a clip that I recorded when Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine showed up, uh, along with his guitar, and he played the lost verses of Woody Guthrie's uh, famous protest song, This Land is Your Land, which, as you already know, was actually written as a counterpart to the uh, one percenters anthem, God Bless America. So here now is Tom Morello joining the Occupy Wall Street demonstrators just a couple of days ago. Me and my people are through. 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 Me and my
together we're going to sing. Together we're going to sing. This land is your land. This land is your land. As loud as anyone has ever sung it. As loud as anyone has ever sung it. Occupied Park in New York City. Occupied Park in New York City. And then finally. And then finally. Incredibly. Incredibly. Incontrovertibly. Incontrovertibly. Everybody in this whole damn place. Everybody in this whole damn place. Front to back. Front to back. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.